Well, this morning we are in our final few weeks in the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation. And we're going to be covering the last part of chapter 19, and we'll be covering all of chapter 20. I won't have the verses on the screen because there's far too many. I didn't, it'd be like 40 slides. I didn't want to do that to our slide guys this morning. But so what I want to do, encourage you is to open up your Bible or turn on your Bible, whatever kind of Bible you brought with you. Uh, It's all the revelations all the way to the right and follow along in 19 and 20. If you ain't got a Bible this morning, you can take it from the seat back in front of you. It's our gift to yours. You can take it with you if you would like. Uh, But it's important for you to read the words uh, for yourself. Uh, I want to encourage you, uh, if you missed the last couple weeks, to go back and watch through YouTube or our website or our app or listen via podcast, because they may have been two two of the most important messages of the series. You know, two weeks ago, we talked about that the greatest threat to Christians in the end times is not persecution. It's the seduction of the world. It is to live for the world instead of living for God. And it's way more dangerous because it sneaks up on you where you don't even know what's happening. And so I would want you to list that from two weeks ago. And then last week, we talked about our relationship with God, how in scripture, it calls us the bride of Christ, right? Which is hard for us dudes, right? Don't call me no bride, right? I want to throw punches at somebody when they call you that. But it is a symbol that God uses for our relationship in him. And it's important to listen to this message because far too many of us grew up with this distant view of God. He go to church, he's there, we go see him, we pray to him every once in a while, but that is it. But God uses the symbol of marriage, the symbol of marriage to show us that we, he wants a much more intimate relationship with us, like a husband and wife that we are that connected to each other, sharing every part of our lives together. And so uh, I know that the first time I studied this, it changed my complete view of what it meant to have a relationship with God. And I pray that it does for you as well. Now, as for today's message, some of you, you study Revelation all the time. So you're excited to get your charts signed out. You're ready to go. Some of you, you've never studied Revelation and you will probably feel lost from the moment go because there's a lot of symbolism in Revelation. I want to remind you, as you walk through this, uh, it's a sermon today, it's not a Bible study. So I'm not going to walk through every symbol, I'm not going to explain everything. So some of you might get frustrated, like, no, we got to talk about this and this and this and this. Maybe not time, we'll do a study on it. Some of you are going to, I'm going to talk and you're going to be like, what is he talking about? This guy is strange and he's weird. I'm hoping what it will do is it'll spark curiosity in your heart to go understand one of the most complex books of the Bible, to do your best to dig into it. Because there is great meaning in Revelation for our lives. And we miss it when we don't put in the effort to understand it. And that's, we're guilty, far too many of us of that. I don't get it, I put it down. And yet there's so many awesome things in there that give us hope and purpose and challenge us. And I'm always available to help you with any of that if you'd like. Now, another question you might ask is what does Revelation have to do with Palm Sunday? It actually has a lot. There are mirror images of each other. I mean, what do you you see on Palm Sunday? You see Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. What do you see in Revelation 19 and 20? You see Jesus riding into the world on a white horse. And what do you see Jesus do when he comes into Jerusalem? He clears out the sellers and the money changers who are corrupting the temple of God. 
Well, what do you see in Revelation? We see Jesus clearing out Satan and all of his followers who are corrupting all of God's creation. Palm Sunday is your first glimpse of Jesus as the coming king. It is your first glimpse of what we will see in Revelations 19 and 20 of Jesus coming again. And as we pop into chapter 19, verse 11, what we see right here is one of the most powerful pictures of Christ ever recorded. Verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and he makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, crowns, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on, the white, on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the God Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This is the word of the Lord. We are going to take the briefest of moments to stop on this because I want you to grasp the immense, immense imagery of Jesus Christ. Because far too many of us have this lowly and gentle view of Jesus. In fact, preacher Vadi Bachman, he became famous for this quote where he says, we as the Christian church have developed a sissified view of Jesus who is weak and needy without us where we're taught about how much he needs us. How we will break his heart when we don't follow us. But Revelation gives us a full picture of Jesus that says, no, no, if you don't follow him, you are not breaking his heart. If you choose not to follow him and he comes again one day, one day he is going to break you. This is the picture that we get of Jesus. This is the duality of Christ. He is the lamb that was slain for the forgiveness of our sins, but he is also the lion of the tribe of Judah who will come again with a mighty roar and crush all who have denied his kingship. I mean, look at the visuals that John gives to this king who leads the armies of heaven. It says his aims, his eyes are like a flame of fire, which invokes his role as a divine judge. His robe is dipped in blood, which is most likely a reference to the blood of those he has come to judge. There are many crowns on his head, and there is a, a mystery to his name, a name that no one knows. Now, in ancient times, your name often was a reference to your character. And so there's probably a piece of his character that we yet, to fully, we yet are to fully understand. And so this King of Kings and this Lord of Lords who is coming again, we have to appreciate this duality. He is the lamb but we, whom we love and who loves us, but he is also the lion in whom we shall fear in obedience to the Lord. Do you hear me, church? Do you see him that way this morning? Eyes 
full of fire, a robe dipped in blood. The conquering king. And then in verse 17 of chapter 19, we get, we get a picture of how he conquers. He says, then I saw an angel standing in the sun and with a loud voice, he called to the birds that fly directly overhead. Come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had, who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Makes for a nice bedtime kid story, doesn't it? I don't remember those verses in my kid's Bible. You know, it's interesting. If you were here for all our study revelation, it was like it was all building up to this great final battle. The thing is, it's not a battle. You don't see a battle take place. And so all you see is Christ striking down the nations with a, sar a sharp sword. Just like that, it's over. Done. And this is a great reminder because sometimes we look at Jesus and the devil as like two equal foes, punching it out. No, no, scripture tells us that is not the case whatsoever. There is no opposition that the devil can pose that Christ at the end of time will not slaughter in a second with all who oppose him. Yes, battles continue to go on in our lives in this world, but the war is already won. Do you live like that? Like the war is already won? With that confidence that Christ will bring ultimate victory in this world. I don't, not often enough. That's why I need verses like Revelation to remind me Jesus has already got the W. They don't need to hold the tournament He's already won all the games. There are no upsets. The top seed won it all. Now this brings us to chapter 20, which explores another vision of what King Jesus will do when he comes again. And I want you to pay attention to these because these are some of the most disputed verses in all of scripture. Chapter 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and the great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into a pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to him to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their, forehands or their, on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. 
The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Verse 7, and when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from prison, and he will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Amen. So let me summarize what we just read. At the second coming of Jesus, there will be defeat of the enemies of God. We see Satan bound, thrown down and sealed into a bottomless pit. For a thousand years, he's unable to deceive the nations. During that same period, either martyred or faithful Christians will come to life and reign with Christ in what's called the first resurrection. And at the end of time, this thousand years, Satan is released for a final assault against the church. He is immediately overthrown and destroyed. And then the rest of the dead will rise along with Satan and the, the beast or the antichrist as we talked about, the false prophet, death and Hades itself, and they're all judged before God. So there you go. This is what happens. Pretty simple, right? Not simple at all. There are so many kinds of questions surrounding these passage. Like one of the big questions is like, how is Revelation all laid out? Is it chronologically, is it like a timeline? Like every chapter is chronologically laid out? Like some people read Revelation 19.20 and they think, okay, this is clear. Jesus comes back, Satan's bound, thousand years, Satan's defeated, we're judged, boom, we're done. And if you grew up in a Protestant evangelical church like our own, this is probably how you were taught to understand Revelation. But there are other views, and I won't go into all of them. But one of the other views is, you know, from men who love God, who study theology, that Revelation is not laid out in a timeline. It is not chronological timeline. Rather, the way that it is laid out in the, in the order in, of the visions that John saw. That every time you see and, and then he saw a new vision, it wasn't like the next step time-wise, it was just the next vision that John saw. And I, I'm not gonna go into detail because we talked about this a lot a few weeks ago. But for example, when you see the bowl judgments uh, and the uh, seal judgments and the trump judgments, they'd say, well, this is not 21 individual judgments. These are the same seven judgments, but different snapshots of how they will unfold in the world. Though another example, they'd say, look at the, the, what we just talked about here in Revelation 28, that J, Satan will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth and to gather them for battle. Well, if you look at chapter 16, you'll, you'll see that there are demonic forces who go around to the kings of the whole world and assemble them for battle for what is called Armageddon. So some would say what you see in Revelation 20 and 16, same battle, different pictures. And then some would look to verse nine, uh, chapter 19 and say, when it says, I saw that, we just read this, I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and the armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the white horse and his army, that this is different snapshots of the same battle and not different ones. 
So, which is it? These are the questions on just this aspect of Revelation alone. There's something they're called pre-millennials. They believe, uh, they believe in this timeline that Jesus will return before the millennium and then seven years and, and everything we've talked about. There's post-millennials that says Jesus will return after the millennium, which is still something to come in the future. And then there's amillennials who say that we're in the millennium right now and that Jesus will return at the end. And they all have different views on all of these questions. Like, how long is a thousand years? Some people said, like, look, it says a thousand. There it is. Like, one, zero, zero, zero. It's a thousand. Others would say, you, you have to understand, there are different types. The Bible is not the same type of literature. You have poetry. You have narrative. You have history. You have census. You have all of these different types. And one of them is you have this apocryphal book of revelations filled with so many illustrations and symbols to help us understand what God is doing. And so they say, look, you see thousand as this perfect completed number that after this perfect amount of time that God has set forth, he'll come again. And then you, you have people who will look at like, you know, they're just kind of like what and where, and they see these people who are seated on thrones. And, and so and so what they say is like at the end of time, you know, people are going to this first resurrection, Christians are going to rise up and they're going to sit on the throne and they're going to judge with Christ for a thousand years, right? We're going to be on this earth and we're going to be judging people. We're going to be serving with him. And other people look at this and they say, okay, when you see this first resurrection, we're not going to judge with him for a thousand years. What it means is that when you put your, your faith in Christ and you die and you go to heaven, that's that first resurrection. So all the people that you know in your life that have put their faith in Christ and they've died and gone on, they've gone off to heaven and they're reigning with him now, that is the first resurrection until they wait final judgment. And I know some of you are like, you never studied Revelation, so this is flying over. So just do your best to hang on. My hardest part this week was trying to decide how deep to go and how deep not to go. So we're doing our best. At the end of yesterday, my sermon was like two and a half hours long. It won't be today. These are just some of the questions. And then you combine it with all the other verses in the Bible of the New Testament and the Old Testament that talk about rapture and tribulation and antichrist and meeting Jesus, the worldwide preaching of the gospel, salvation of Israel. And you're like, man, how do all these things fit together? And, and David Plath, the pastor, he says, Revelation is like a jigsaw puzzle. And you put all these different pieces together, trying to get a picture, trying to figure out how they fit together. And what you do is you have all these different Christians that end up all these different pictures. I'm tired just thinking about it. Now, somebody asked me recently, like, hey, can you share more of your opinions on what you think about Revelation? Which I have to laugh because... I don't normally have people asking me for more of my opinions. They're usually saying, yeah, we're good. They don't need enough of you. We have enough of your opinions because I'm free in giving out my opinions. And I said, okay, I can do that. So let me tell you where I'm at right now, where I'm currently landing. I grew up being taught in a premillennial view of Revelation. Little thousand years, everything go with it. I was watching all the end time movies, preparing for all of that in my mind. But after studying scripture for myself, because most of us, our views of revelation are based on what we've been taught over and over again. We're not willing to put in the time or work to study it for ourselves. Just, we aren't. A majority of us will not. Where I land now is I think Christ has come once, and I think through the death and resurrection of Jesus, Satan is already bound. 
Second, Colossians 2.15 says that Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Hebrews 2.14 says, through death, Jesus destroyed the one who has the power of death, and that is the devil. I think Satan, Christ has come once and Satan's bound. He does not have the authority that he once did in the way that he did before Christ's death and resurrection. He is unable to deceive the elect. He's unable to deceive those who God knows will come to Christ. He cannot prevent them from being saved or the church being built. He can tempt us. He can, he can try to deceive us, but that's the only tool he's got. He has no power. And second, this is the primary focus of binding until God's appointed time. He's unable to deceive pagan nations into gathering together a final assault on the church. I mean, think about it. Do you think Satan, if he could, he would gather all of the world's armies, he would attempt everybody just to crush Christianity right in a heartbeat if he had the ability? Why would you not? Maybe he knows things I don't. But I would like, if I know people are spreading bad news that I don't want spread, I am going to squash it. He's not able to do that. So I believe we're in the millennium now. And that Satan has been bound and he, and we are reigning with Christ. This is why in Second Peter, you see us called priests. How we're told in Romans 8, we're more than conquerors. Now this brings up a whole host of questions because when I look out in the world, I do not feel like anybody's reigning but Satan. Just watch the news. In any kingdom on earth where somebody is reigning, it does not mean they have complete and total obedience by all people. There is no kingdom where this has ever happened. Not until Christ comes again for the second time. None. There are always people that they have to squash. But in those kingdoms, they reign because they have greater power to limit the work of those who oppose them. And I could go into a whole sermon on this, but for the sake of pancakes, we won't today. <laughs> Satan is active. He is active with those who allow him to be active. So I don't believe Revelation 20 is showing us a complete stop of Satan's work. I believe that it's symbolic imagery. And like all we see through Revelation, these spiritual realities are, are put in pictures, by, in these physical pictures, so we can help understand them. The point is, Satan could not stop Christ. And through his death and resurrection, he cannot stop the church. And this was the whole point of Revelation, going, look, you're going to go through hard stuff. People are going to come against you. People are going to fall away from the church, but you cannot be stopped. Romans 8, 37, we are more than conquerors through Christ. He cannot stop the gospel. He can tempt, he can deceive, but we have a choice whether to give over to that or not. He's bound. He is bound until the second coming of Christ. And I know there's a whole many details you're probably thinking if you've ever studied that you want to ask me. We don't have time for it today. But this is where I'm at with Revelation right now. Notice I said right now. One of my problems with the church is we get people who are called issue Christians. They latch onto an issue in the church and that's their gospel. For some, this is their gospel. Like if they were sitting here in this pew and they heard me talk what I just said, they would walk out in disgust. Well, I told you in this several weeks ago, I find the people 
In my experience, the Christians who are the most mature, who have studied the word the most, they have the most humility about God's word. In the, in the places where there should not be humility, like Jesus came, came to die and rise again, they stand fast. But in the places where there is wiggle room, they have humility. We should be the same. We should be the same. I don't care if anybody disagrees with me about Revelation. I don't care. They shouldn't care. Because it, in the end, what Hebrews says is true. All men are appointed to die once and then you face God. So if I'm right, fantastic. If I'm wrong, I'll be like, oh, I didn't get that one right. Oh, wait, it doesn't matter. Because I'm still claiming the blood of Jesus Christ. We have to stay humble when it comes to these things. Now, it's fun to investigate. And listen, I mean, we should, because some people will read it, listen to all this, and they're like, I don't care. You should care. Because this is God's word. And he has given it to you. He has given it to you to study and to understand. Now, there's some things he's made clearer than others. But to say, I don't care and it's too much for me is lazy. And I say this because I have been lazy. But what I've noticed is when I study Revelation, though, I don't understand all the details. What I do is understand the meaning. And that's what we've been talking about. The meaning of this book is what matters the most. And that is to reassure in our hearts that in whatever it looks like, and it'll probably all make sense when it happens, that Christ will come again. He will defeat sin and Satan, and he will bring judgment to this world. Amen. Revelation chapter 20. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away and there was no place found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them and they were judged and each one of them according to what they had done. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire and this is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Or as we better know it, hell. According to scripture, hell is the place for those, for the devil, for an all who follow him and for those who reject Christ. And it is the most appalling reality and gut-wrenching truth of the Bible. The Bible describes hell as eternal punishment, a fire that never goes out, a fire that is never quenched, a place where there is constant weeping and gnashing or grinding of teeth. Now, some will say, okay, is this fire? Is it imagery? Is it symbolic? I don't know. But I'll tell you right now, it does not matter. Because if it's true that God created us and in our creation to be fulfilled, to know who we are, to feel love and worth and purpose, something we all struggle with, if that can be found fully in God, the one who created us, then the greatest punishment that we can experience is being removed fully from his presence not having access to any of that at all. That's the real hell. I mean, think about it. Mark chapter nine, Jesus says, look, 
It is better for you to cut off your hand or pluck out your eye and to enter the kingdom of God crippled than to have that hand and to have that eye and be sent to hell. Now, we get this response often. I've talked about this many times. A loving God would never send people to hell. This is what I call emotional theology. It's where our beliefs of God are based on our own emotions rather than what the word of God says. We talked about this a few weeks ago. That the wrath of God in in Revelation is one of the reasons that people worshiped him. Why? Because he would not be a loving God. He would not be a holy God if he did not deal with sin. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Now, the reason we have a problem with his judgment is because if what the Bible says is true, then, and we don't put our faith in him, then we head to hell. We're the ones on the line. Nowhere else in society do we believe, let's let people off the hook, right? Was anybody screaming? I I said this last time, was anybody screaming? Jeffrey Epstein, let him out, let him off the hook. Let him go, let's show him love. Nobody is screaming that. Nobody screams that when we see people in this world. I guarantee you, if Hitler did not end his life, nobody would have been yelling, let's just let him go. Why do we yell this thing at God? Because we know we're the ones to be judged. But and you want God to judge. I've said this before. If you found, if you were gonna invite somebody to come live in your home, and you found out that they had a highly contagious disease that would kill everybody in your home, and you said to them, I need you to go get this taken care of, get cured, and they refused to do so, you would not let them in your home. And yet we complain that God will not let people into his kingdom, into his heaven, that will not claim him as Lord. We just don't want to be held accountable. We want to live life where we're our own God. And so we ignore this. Listen, we have to understand because we have this very touchy, warm, loving view of God that he loves us all and going to take care of us all. Problem is that's not in scripture. Scripture is very clear. Before we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we are considered enemies of God. Sin is an act of treason against God. When God says, I am your God, I am your creator. This is how I want you to live. And we say, no, I'm going to live this other way. It is an act of treason because we are rejecting him as our God and King. And we're teaching everybody under our influence to do the same. We are leading a revolt against God. Problem is we just don't have a very serious view of our sins. Ephesians 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once lived. When you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. 
Scripture says you are separated from God by your sin. Your sin is an act of disobedience, an act of treason against God. You have two options. You can lay down your life before God. You can lay down your weapons against God. You can repent and say, God, I've been trying to live as my own God. I don't want to do that anymore. And it says, it says God will come in. The duality. Here's another aspect of a relationship with God. He will adopt you like a parent walking into an orphanage. He will adopt you and he said, you are no longer my enemy. You are now my son and daughter of God. And then one day when you breathe your last breath or Christ comes again, whichever comes first, first, you will be ushered into his home forever. Or you can choose not to repent. You can choose not to look on the truths of scripture and you can say, I'm going to be my own God. And then when you breathe your last breath or when you come again, Jesus will say to you, away from me, I never knew you. This is the gut-wrenching reality of the Christian gospel. And to not preach all of it is to cheat it. And if you sit here today and you're like, I don't believe this. I feel like it's a bunch of garbage. I want you to ask yourself a question. Is it possible that you're blinded to the truth? Is it possible that you cannot see God's truth because you don't want to submit your life to him and you want to do what you want to do. Just like we all have had people in our lives where they've been destroyed by drugs or alcohol or they're so narcissistic and selfish in the way they live their lives and they're so blinded to it they can't see it. We've all seen them. Scripture says it's the same for us when it comes to our sin. And so my prayer today is twofold. One, that if you sit here today and that you put your faith in Christ, you will rejoice because you know what Jesus saved you from. You didn't save yourself. He saved you. And if you haven't, that the Holy Spirit will move upon you, that you will respond and you will repent. And for the first time, as we read in Romans 10, you will call upon the name of the Lord.